Well, this morning, I'd like to somewhat deviate, somewhat deviate from the book of Isaiah. If you've been with us, we've been walking through the book of Isaiah together for quite some time. And uh, we are somewhat going to leave this aspect. But what I'd like to do is uh, really talk about just the birth story of Christ today. But what I hope to do You guys got your own seating section. What I hope to do, (laughs) all right, I'll just talk this way, uh, is is to talk about the birth of Christ from the text, from Matthew and Luke, both texts, as you can see on the screen. And uh, I'd like to do it, though, from the position and uh, eyes and angle of Isaiah, okay? And so we've been talking about Isaiah. We've been talking about these prophecies and how they're unfolding and uh, what all they mean and how they hold such great significance to us. And uh, maybe we can see that a little bit today. So I'd like to walk through the birth story of Christ today, but I'd like to do so from, uh, from the angle of, of Isaiah. And so I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Really, I see the birth story in kind of nine uh, movements, and so we're going to look at those today. And the first one is this that the birth of Jesus is promised. It's really important that we understand and remember that the birth of Jesus Christ was a promise to us. It was a promise that God made. Now, uh, the very first promise of this we find all the way back in Genesis. Of course, you probably know that, right? Uh, Right when the curse was being talked about on the serpent, and the serpent was one day going to be destroyed. And uh, this is where we first find a promise of a Savior who is to come. Now, it's blurry at first, isn't it? What does that look like? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Who's that going to be? But as the texts unfold, right, as we just sung about, we see this plan unfolding over time, is that we come to see that it is Jesus Christ accomplishing this. And it's so exciting to see. If you would, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, and beginning in verse 18. And it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this, is that what your Bible says? Maybe in different words, you have a different translation than ESV, but it says something very similar to that. All this, all these things took place for what purpose? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Guess which prophet that was? You can guess, go ahead. Isaiah, good guess. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us or God with us. 
Now, when Joseph woke up, uh, this was a dream. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, just as he was told. Now, Matthew is very quick to tell us all of this took place. So he begins, it's very important, look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this, in this way, in this manner. Let me tell you how it came to be. And then he says, now all of this, all these events took place for what purpose? To fulfill what Isaiah had promised. Now, was it really Isaiah's promise? You know what I mean, we talked about this the other day. When I say Isaiah said it, who said it? God said it. Now, not everything Isaiah said was God saying it, but everything that Isaiah said that made its way into the book of Isaiah is what God said. So when Isaiah said it in Isaiah, God said it. Right? Yeah, we all get that. Now, what did Isaiah say? I have it on the screen. This is Isaiah 7.14. It's quoted by Matthew, but just look at what it says. If you can read it, it's a little small. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Who gave the sign? God. And what is the sign? That the virgin conceives and bears a son, and they call his name Emmanuel. So then why did they call him Jesus? That's a little confusing, potentially. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how some of these other events unfold, okay? So let's just look at this second movement, and we're going to go over to Luke for it. Now, as you read, and maybe have, have you... Uh, been reading maybe through the Advent devotional, or you've been looking at some of these stories at home and reading them yourself during Christmas time and reminding yourself of these stories and the reason that we celebrate Christmas Day. You've been reading through these stories and reminding yourself. You'll notice that uh, we have four gospel accounts, um, and in Matthew and Luke, we are given some details about this birth, but in Mark and John, not so much. And even in Matthew and Luke, we are given a birth account, but with different information. It doesn't mean that they are contrary or contradictory events. It just means that we have some information from Matthew. We have some information from Luke. And this is the way God intended it. You know how I can say that with confidence? Because he intended us to have four gospel accounts, not one. So we take what we are given in all four gospel accounts, and we can see how the birth of Christ unfolded at least the information that we need to know, right? Because do we have all the information? We don't. Isn't some of this very intriguing, though, and you want more information? Yeah. So here's the second event. Caesar Augustus orders a registration. As we have been talking about in Isaiah, let's just see uh, what we can pull from this. Let, let's look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor. Big deal guy. He is the main guy in charge of the entire Roman Empire. And he said, we're going to have a registration, a census, because all these people, there's been some uh, people trying to claim this area as theirs. However, it is mine, and I'm making sure of it. I just want to make sure of how many people we got going on here. But it's mine. No one questioned that. So he wants a registration. They did this somewhat frequently. And so in those days, a, a, a registration uh, was called. It was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, when uh, 
everyone went to be registered. And how, where did they go? How did they go? Each to his own, his, uh, his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, uh, which was from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now remember, Matthew kind of left us hanging. He, well, he actually said, so the birth of Jesus Christ uh, takes place, and anyway, let's move to this event. And he jumps to a different event, whereas Luke fills in some information. Um, when Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, guy with a lot of power, decided to order a registration of all the people, and it caused Mary and Joseph to have to travel to Bethlehem in order to fulfill prophecy that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, who actually ordered that registration to take place? God did. Is it like God to take control of pagan foreign nations and do what he pleases? Studying through Isaiah, you could say, well, God seems to do that an awful lot, doesn't he? Have we seen that happening over and over through the book of Isaiah? That what God wants to do, he's going to do. And if he needs to take the hand of Assyria, for example, as his wrath and anger, then he's going to do so. Now, when Caesar Augustus decided it was a good idea, it's because God was ordaining an event. And God caused this to happen. The birth of Jesus then takes place somewhere around, and you probably know this, about 6 to 4 to B.C., uh, not the year 1, uh, most likely. Uh, we know that because Herod died in 4 B.C., and all this took place during Herod's lifetime. So um, the guy who made the A.D.B.C. thing came a few hundred years later, and he was off just a little bit. That's okay. Uh, that's actually not in Scripture, A.C. or A.C. Uh, it, I almost said A.C.D.C., but then I, I didn't. Get those mixed up, you come up with something different. Uh, A, D, B, C. There we go. Uh, but anyway, all this is recording historical events. And so we see things unfolding. We see events taking place. We see people making big decisions. And these things are coming about. But there are so many puzzle pieces coming together here. We can't deny that God was at work in a powerful, mighty way to bring all this together all at the same time. And that's why I'm taking us through these movements of Jesus' birth to show you that the birth of Jesus is promised by the sovereignty of God. Is it, is there, is it possible that the birth would not take place? No. Is it possible that the birth of Jesus would take place a minute sooner or a minute later than God intended? No. Is it possible that Caesar Augustus would forget or decide not to take a registration? No, because it was prophesied that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, and if he had not, they would have stayed in Galilee in the town of Nazareth. None of this stuff happened by chance, but by God's direction. This is good news for us. Movement number three Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is known as the city of David. David's father was born in, in Bethlehem. David was born in Bethlehem. Um, Luke 2, 6 and 7, it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, 
because there was no place for them in the end. Now, you probably take these couple of verses, and this is basically what the world at large knows of the Christmas story. That's it, these two verses. That Mary and Joseph were traveling, and Mary was on a donkey, and they were in the desert, and it was night, and there were stars, right? And they're traveling down the desert by, themse- in, by themselves, and Joseph's walking, holding the donkey, and then they get to the inn, and he knocks on the door, and he says, do you have any space for us? And he says, no, we're full. And so he says, but you can go over with the animals, I guess, if you want. Or, and then, the, so they go, and they make a place for them with the animals, and then and then all of a sudden, there's a star above their heads, and the animals are all watching, and, you know, all this stuff happens. You know, it, it's strange how all this takes place, because there's a lot of information that people are assuming in those couple of verses, right? Um, I, I, okay, so this word, I couldn't pass up the opportunity. I've preached a lot of, like, Christmas messages, and I was thinking as I was preparing, yeah, we've talked about all. We've 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 dug into pretty much every element and part of the story. We we've dug into the Magi one year. Uh, we 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 dug into the lineage one year. We dug into every every part of this was like we focused on one of these at, at one time at one Christmas season. You say, well, I wasn't here for that. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, but uh, so I was thinking about it this year, and I was thinking, you know, one thing that we haven't talked too much about is this right here. So I'll at least give you this as we're doing a survey of the stories. Is that this in uh, is the same word that Luke uses in Luke 22, 11. And listen to what it says. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? Same exact word as this word translated in. Also, in Luke 10, 34, in the story of the prodigal son, or nope, uh, the Good Samaritan. I don't know. It's four o'clock. I never preach at four o'clock. Uh, the, the Good Samaritan. And you remember that uh, he comes by and he, he takes him where? To an inn, right? And he uses a different word there for inn. He uses the word that's used commonly for a public inn. It's not the word used here. It is most likely although we should not get caught up on too many details, it is most likely the case that this was not a public inn. Uh, but instead, it was the home of a relative, and there was simply no room for them in the, guest, in the guest room because it was already taken. You say, well, what about the whole animal situation? Well, I got two pictures here for you because I know you guys just like this kind of stuff so much. That if you go up the stairs, that's, that's the main dwelling, and down below, that's where all the animals were kept. This is one option, common house. Another common option, this is kind of like a little diagram here, but you see where the animals are and where the kitchen is. Probably not how you do it today. But this was common for the ancient people to live in close proximity to their animals. So to have a manger with animals in your home was common. So you don't have to think about this rickety old stable outside somewhere, and it's snowing because it's December 25th, after all, and it's snowing outside, and, you know, there, there's all they have is... That, you, that's not the image we necessarily have to have. It, it probably is far more likely that when they traveled, they stayed with relatives. When they got there, other relatives had already come to stay, and for whatever reason, they couldn't stay in the guest room. But what they could do is go where the animals were in the more public area 
and lay the baby in the most reasonable spot that they had at hand, which was a manger, which you should know as a feeding trough. And so they laid the baby there. Now, Jesus was laid in a manger, in a feeding trough. The creator of the universe was laid in a feeding trough. Possibly, more significantly, he was laid in a place where food is kept. Right? Jesus is the food that sustains your soul. There's a lot to be said here about about this situation, but we're going to continue to follow the movements here because there's a big story happening. This is one element of the story. Let's not get caught up just on that element when people say, it's so amazing that Jesus was in a manger, and that's it. We get hung up on that. That's true. There are far more things of, of just fascination for us that God brought together in such amazing detail to bring about the birth of our Savior, and it's exciting to see. So what's the next thing that happened? I'm following these in chronological order, by the way. What happens next? Mary gives birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. What happens next? The shepherds hear the birth. When? On the same day, because the angel says, on this, on this day, right? So it happens in the same day, which is pretty exciting stuff. So there are some shepherds in a field, and that happens in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. So there are Mary and Joseph, uh, potentially, in a... In a in an environment where they've certainly other by animals and they lay the baby in the manger and that whole situation. Uh, but then it, it doesn't end there. That's not the end of the story. In the same region, there were shepherds out in a field and they were keeping watch of their flock by night, common activity. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear as we all would be should an angel appear to us at night in the middle of a field. That would probably be a pretty terrifying sight to see. But he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you born this day in the, in the city of David as a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You're going to find the baby wrapped in, uh, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, in a feeding trough. Would that have been a little strange? Even for them. Let's not think that, oh, baby lying in a feeding trough, that's a normal activity. That's, that's where you normally put a baby. Not true. It's strange that there was a baby there. So they said, if you find that, that's your sign, that this is the Savior. So they said, let's, so well, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. And so they go. Um, so they go, and they find Mary and Joseph. And you might wonder, how did they find Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, the scriptures don't tell us, so it must not be significant. They found him somehow. And they told them what the angel said, and they were very excited, and they began to tell other people. A significant event here that we don't want to pass over, it came to mind for me, and this, this was our emphasis one year when we were talking through the scriptures and the birth story, is that do you know that these shepherds were situated between Bethlehem and Jerusalem? And there was a place there in Hebrew, called Migdal Eder, and translated, that means the Tower of the Flock, and in Micah 4.8, it says, And to you, O tower of the flock, the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So there's a prophecy there about the announcement of Christ coming to the tower of the flock. Tower of the flock was, had some shepherds in it, and they were part of the, the priesthood. And their particular job was to raise sheep for slaughter for Passover to be used for sacrifice. 
And so just think about what happened here. Why, why, what's the deal with the shepherds? Why was the birth announcement given to shepherds? People say, well, because they were lowly. I think it's far more significant than that. I think they went to the shepherds and they said, the Lamb of God has been born. Go see him. This is the great sacrifice. This is the great lamb. So these ones who were in charge of raising up these lambs for the temple in Jerusalem were told to go see the greatest lamb that there was, the lamb of God. It's very significant. So what happened next? It's not over. There are more events that took place surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. All the, we could leave it there, and these are amazing events that take place. But next, Jesus is circumcised and presented at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, they take Jesus, now, he had to be eight, year, uh, eight days old, and they took Jesus, and they had him circumcised. They took him and presented him at the uh, temple when he was 41 days old. And uh, so how long have they been staying in this place that they're in? At least 41 days, because they did it according to the law. So they had been staying there for at least 41 days. They took Jesus to the temple, and when they got there, there were two people there. Anna and Simeon, and they both saw Jesus as a baby, a 41-day-old baby, right? We have some little babies in here, little tiny baby, and they brought the baby in, and, they, and he said, there he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, there he is, and they recognized because the Spirit was communicating that to them, right? It's amazing, these events that took place. Something to indicate there is that they go to give a uh, sacrifice, and if they had been wealthy, they would have offered a lamb. But they were not wealthy. They offered some birds instead, so that indicates to us that they were not wealthy. That's important to know because soon they would be wealthy, which means that they had not become wealthy yet, which means that this event occurred before the visit of the Magi because the Magi are about to bring them some stuff, Right? So that's what happens next, is that at some point later, some magi come and they visit the home where they were staying. Notice that it's a home that they were staying in, right? That happens in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king. And then Luke tells us all about that. That's Matthew 2, 1 through 8. And behold, wise men, or magi, came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I believe last year this was our emphasis talking in Christmas about the king of the Jews, right? Because whose title was the king of the Jews? Herod. That was his official given title by Rome, king of the Jews. These guys come and they say, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod says, I'm going to lose my mind. That's me. And they said, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Go find him, and I'll come and worship him. But of course, we all know what did he want to do. He wanted to kill him. No one's taken my title from me. I worked hard for this title, right? So there we have uh, this situation. So what do the Magi bring? Everybody knows this. What did the Magi bring and present to Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We focused on this another year, right? So many of these events that took place. Now, if you were offered very, very expensive gifts, including gold, did that family just become wealthy? And if they had been wealthy, they would have offered something different in the temple, meaning they, they had already gone and were, had come back, right? 
Okay, so we're just following this. Oh, by the way, how many magi were there? Thank you. We don't know. have no idea. No clue. How many gifts were there? Don't know. Have no clue. There were gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't know how many gifts there were total, uh, but I know what the gifts were composed of anyway. The visit of the Magi happens sometime later, and it happens within a span of between about a year and two years. My guess is closer to a year because Herod then does something miserable, but we'll get to that next. Uh, before we do, Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. That's the next event that happens. So the Magi leave, and uh, again, Joseph has another communication from an angel. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and, and remain there until you, uh, until you hear that Herod is, is dead. And so that's where they go. They flee to Egypt. Quite a long journey. And they stay there. And why did they go there? Why did they go to Egypt? To fulfill scripture. That's right, because what does Hosea 11.1 1 say? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Didn't we talk about this just a couple of weeks ago? We're going through the book of Isaiah. Who is it? Let's just pause on all these details for a second. Who is it that's orchestrating all these events to take place? But it seems like an awful lot, doesn't it? Can God juggle all that? Can he bring all those puzzle pieces together to make this thing work just right? Do you know that your life is not too crazy for God to bring things about in exactly the right timing? Nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing. Do you see what he's doing here? Do you know that you have been, by faith, adopted as a child of God? Is there anything your father cannot do? He is going to do exactly as he intends, and no one can stop him. And aren't you thankful for that? We see the great love of the Father for the Son. And you are sons of God, should you have faith in Christ. That's amazing. This is amazing news for us. What happens next? And the question I'm going to ask is, is God sovereign over this too? Herod kills all the male children. God sovereign over that too? Or did Satan get in there and have his hand at play, and God said, I am trying my best here. But Satan got in there, and some kids were killed. Now, is this a horrible event? Is this evil? Yes. But was it outside the sovereign hand of God? Never. What happens? Herod saw that he had been tricked, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 16. Herod saw that he was tricked by the wise men because they never came back and reported where the, where the little baby was. So they went to Bethlehem and all the surrounding region, and they said, let's just kill them all. We know he's in Bethlehem, so let's exaggerate. Let's go to Bethlehem and all the surrounding region, which makes me also guess that they exaggerated the time frame as well. 
They said a year, let's go to two years. Let's kill all the male children in the entire region that are two years old and under. And they were successful. There are children in here in this room two years and, and, and under. Stripped from you and killed. Because Herod was searching for the Messiah to wipe him out from the face of this earth. It's a sad situation, but you know what? Even this was to fulfill prophecy. Jeremiah 31.15, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Ra Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew tells us in chapter 2, verse 18, that this happened to fulfill this scripture. Why Rachel? Rachel was buried just outside of Bethlehem. And so Rachel began to be associated with the city of Bethlehem. Rachel is weeping for her children. And so here it is. Is the Lord sovereign over this event too? Yes. I hope that brings perspective to what we were talking about last week together in the book of Isaiah about the Lord being sovereign over all things, including suffering and evil. Is he, is he sovereign over that too? Yes. You know, for some people, the Christmas season brings about times of torment of the soul. I know that's true. Maybe Christmas is not a fun time for you. And maybe there is suffering, but do you know that even that suffering, all suffering, any suffering, do you know that none of it, because the Lord is sovereign over it, no suffering is without purpose because the Lord is sovereign over it. And out of all these things, all of them, every one of them, what does the Lord intend through them? He is working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For what purpose? What's the good? Will we ever see it? What is it? What's the good? Do we remember? What is that good? Verse 29, that you might be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good. Whatever is happening in your life right now today that brings you here for Christmas morning, do you see that all events in your life are seeking to be conformed to the image of the Son of God? Everything is working toward that end. Everything that you might be conformed. Have you gone through stuff in your life and you say, what, what good could come from that? What, I don't see the point of why did I go through all that? What is it for? To be conformed to Christ. That's what it's for. Nothing is wasted, nothing is lost. You need to hear that. It is true. Was this situation lost and it was meaningless? No. Nothing is lost and nothing is meaningless because the Lord is sovereign over it, right? So what happens next? Is the story over? Finally, Mary and Joseph move back to Nazareth. I was somewhere one time and... Uh, I'm pretty sure it was at a church I worked at at one point in time, and there was a staff meeting, and someone said, where did Jesus and, or Joseph and Mary come from? I know they moved back to Nazareth, to Nazareth, but where did they come from? Well, it seems a silly question because evidently we're focusing on details and, and forgetting the big picture. They lived in Nazareth already. And then there was a census and they went to Bethlehem, and they stayed there. And then they went to Egypt, and they stayed. This was kind of an extended journey. 
And then they went back to Nazareth because that's where he's from. To fulfill scripture. That he might be called a Nazarene. Right? All of this worked together perfectly to fulfill what the Lord intended. Every single bit of it. The the Lord is sovereign over it. I'd like to... uh, leave you with a bit of application of this from the book of John. So just turn there with me and we'll, we'll end in this, this passage here. John chapter 1, verse 9. I've been talking today with kind of the assumption that we are all already familiar with the story, the birth story of Christ, and you could tell that, right? I was working with that assumption today, and what I wanted to do was point you to the fact that all of this was to fulfill what the Lord had intended. Were there a lot of puzzle pieces that had to fit just right to make all this work? And if one of them didn't fit, something would have been off. Is it possible that one of these pieces, is it possible that one of these pieces would not have fit just right? That somewhere, some, somewhere down the line, one of the, imagine how many components had to work just right for all this to take place. What if one of them didn't? It's not possible. It's impossible that one of these components did not fit right. Do you see it? It's impossible. This speaks of a God who is very powerful. All for what? What's, uh, why did he, why was all this in there? What's the end goal here? What, What do we need out of all this? John 1, verses 9 through 14 The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is to the Jewish community, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The only son from the father was coming into the world. And don't you think it only appropriate that the hand of God was at work in every single bit of every little circumstance and every conversation that was had, everything came about for just this intended purpose and reason to bring his son into this world that he might be flesh and walk among us. The question I have for you today as we have just walked through the birth story of Jesus Christ and we see all these events and how it unfolded and how these things came to be and we understand that God is sovereign through it all, right? God was sovereign through every bit of it. He was the one doing it. The question really remains this, is that John tells us we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. Unfortunately, 
many have not seen the glory of the Son of God. They have instead seen a simplified, fictionalized, commercialized version of the story of a baby in a manger. And I want to make sure that we, on Christmas Day, the day that we have marked out to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, do not have such a watered-down version of the story of the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is, do we recognize his glory today? And for some of you, have you seen this glory? What is the birth of Jesus Christ and who is this baby? I want you to consider that today as you go throughout the rest of your day. I, uh, as you know, I'm very tempted to go into many other things, but I'm not going to. As you can probably tell, I'm working very hard to hold it in. So that's what I'm doing. I wanted to do a survey of the story of Jesus' birth today. I think we accomplished that because just in recalling what has happened, uh, the Lord is honored. Remembering what he did through the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord is honored in that. And I hope that you have seen the Lord at work in all these situations. I hope that you have seen the Lord at work in your life today. If he is the glorious son of God and he shines brighter than all things, has he been the focus of your day today? I'm so glad that you're here because this, this says something, doesn't it? Worship of the son of God is important to us. And gathering with the people of God who worship the Son of God are important. It's very important, and it's encouraging to our souls that we might do that. Put things in light of the glory of the Son of God today. And things, all these trivial things will go away, I promise. Seeing the glory of the Son of God is very significant to us, and I, uh, I hope that you do that today. I hope that you have seen it today. But I'm going to end our time in the Word today, and uh, we're going to pray, and I'd like to just sing one more song with you today before we, before we go, okay? So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for just this time in your Word as we've just uh, talked about how you sent uh, your Son to be born of flesh and how all these different pieces just kind of came together uh, for this miraculous event and that you were sovereign through it all. It reminds us that you are just as sovereign today as you were then. No things are happening by chance or accident. All these great promises that we're reading of in the book of Isaiah have found their fulfillment in Christ. Now, then and yet to come, and so many things that you are doing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to see that, help us to see life in light of the Son of God who came in glory, who dwelt among us, who was crucified, who was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, taking on himself the wrath that we deserved for sin. Thank you for what you have accomplished. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.